You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. In 1936, entertainer Eddie Cantor announced on his radio show that he would award a $5,000 scholarship to anyone who wrote the best essay on keeping the United States out of war. And the contest was open to any man, woman, or child, and the rules were, well, there were no rules. And when there are no rules, things are almost certain to go wrong, and they certainly did in this case. I am Steve Silverman, and today I present to you the long-forgotten story of the Eddie Cantor Peace Prize. This is the Useless Information Podcast. Useless Information Now, it's been said that the golden age of radio, you know, when radio was at its best, was the period between 1930 and 1955, after which audiences, of course, turned their attention to television. One of radio's highest paid stars at the time was Eddie Cantor. You know, he was one of those entertainers who seemed to be able to do it all. You know, he was a singer, dancer, comedian, actor, songwriter, and so on. And while few people today are familiar with Cantor, a few of his hit songs can still be heard today. Perhaps you've heard the hit songs Makin' Whoopi or If You Knew Susie Like I Know Susie. And even if you're not familiar with those two, he co-wrote a song that I think you do know that's called Merrily We Roll Along, and that was later adapted as the theme song, the intro to Merry Melodies and Looney Tunes cartoons. You know, Bugs Bunny, Elmer Fudd, Porky Pig, Daffy Duck, and so on. In addition, on his radio show, Cantor introduced the world to a song that no one else would give a chance. Now, he didn't sing it, but he introduced it to the world, and it became a big smash hit after that. Maybe you've heard of it. Santa Claus is coming to town. Another one of his accomplishments, if you can call it that, occurred on May 25th of 1944 when he was scheduled to sing on television We're Having a Baby, My Baby and Me, but censors at NBC in New York considered some of the song's lyrics a bit too risque. But Cantor didn't have time to prepare another number and went ahead with the song anyway. So the censors cut the sound and they blurred the picture at various points during his routine, and that made Eddie Cantor the first person ever to be censored on television. What's interesting is that eight years later, and you probably remember this if you're a fan of the show, Ricky Ricardo sang that same exact song on I Love Lucy after learning that Lucy was pregnant. It is a classic episode. But the day I want to focus on is January 5th of 1936. That's when millions of listeners were tuned into Eddie's Sunday evening show on the Columbia Network, and Cantor announced that he would provide a four-year scholarship to any college or university within the United States to the person who wrote the best essay 
explaining how the United States could stay at a war. Anyone, be it male or female of any age, could enter. What's amazing is that there were no set rules to the contest. All one needed to do was write the best essay of 500 words or less. That's it. You know, what can go wrong? Well, as we'll later find out, a lot can go wrong. Cantor explained, quote, There are absolutely no strings attached to this offer. No one has to tear the top off of a carton of any kind, nor send in stamps, nor solve a crossword puzzle. All one has to do is sit down and write a straightforward letter on how can America stay out of war. I never was fortunate enough to have had a college education myself, but I want to provide one for some American boy or girl. I'm a rabid peace advocate. I'm certain that the winning letter will be one worthy to bring before millions of Americans as another link in the strong chain of peace. I'm very grateful to Mr. Newton D. Baker for so kindly suggesting the title. And that's the end of the quote. A little side note here is that Baker, who suggested this title, he was the United States Secretary of War under President Woodrow Wilson from 1916 through 1921, and he was the one who presided over the U.S. Army during World War I. I have some bad news for you, and that is if you had a great idea for an essay on peace, you missed the deadline. In fact, you're about 86 years too late. The real deadline for the essay submission was set for President's Day. That's February 22nd of 1936. And the winner will be announced later on Cantor's April 5th show of that same year. To make sure that everything was on the up and up, Cantor set up a $5,000 trust fund with the Manhattan Trust Company of New York. Now $5,000 would be over $100,000 today. Once the winner was selected and chose which college he or she wanted to attend, those funds were intended to cover all of the college expenses. That include tuition, books, meals, housing, and so on. And should the winner be unable to use the scholarship, he or she could designate another person as a recipient. So if you're a parent or a grandparent and you won, you could turn it over to another person. There were four judges chosen for the peace contest. They were Robert M. Hutchins of the University of Chicago, Frederick Bertrand Robinson of the College of the City of New York, Ray Lyman Wilbur of Leland Stanford University, and Henry Noble McCracken of Vassar College. Now, these four men had their work cut out for them. That's because a January 10, 1936 suggestion by the Daily Illini, which is the University of Illinois student newspaper, it stated, quote, It would be a wise step indeed if the universities, which deal in advancing intellectual, moral, social, and physical standards, were to assist Mr. Cantor in unearthing constructive answers to this question. Now, that simple message is said to have set off a wave of discussions and essay writing competitions in educational institutions all across the nation. 8,420 submissions were made within the contest's first week, and 58,000 were received by week three. When the contest closed on February 22nd, more than 212,000 essays had been received, and 40% of them came from high school students. I have to tell you, having been a teacher for 30 years, that's a lot of essays for four men to read. I'm not sure I graded that many papers in my entire career. Anyway, they ultimately whittled the pile down to just 14 essays, and each one was identified solely by a number. 
They unanimously selected number two as the best of the bunch, noting that it was, quote, the most constructive, sincere, and interesting letter, regardless of fancy writing and technical knowledge. And, as promised, Eddie Cantor revealed the identity of mystery writer number two during his April 5, 1936 broadcast. The winner, he was 18-year-old Plattsburgh, Missouri student Lloyd Franklin Lewis. The son of Elsie and Logan Lewis, Lloyd was a junior at Plattsburgh High School, and it was reported that the Lewises were in bad financial straits, you know, with their family farm being heavily mortgaged. So learning that Lloyd had won a fully paid college scholarship must have been incredible news. Well, two days prior to the announcement, a phone call for Lloyd was received in the Baber cleaning shop, which just happened to be next door to the building where Lloyd was temporarily attending class. And that's because the Plattsburgh High School had recently burned down and all the industrial arts classes were moved into that building. Mrs. Baber told him, quote, It's long distance, Lloyd. So he ran and he picked up the phone and the operator informed him that the call was from New York. But Lloyd told her she had the wrong person because he didn't have any relatives there. A man on the other end of the line then stated, quote, Don't get excited. This is me, Eddie Cantor, in New York. Lloyd instantly recognized his voice. Eddie continued, You're one of the 14 chosen to compete for the scholarship. Listen in Sunday and maybe your name will be announced. And as soon as he hung up the phone, Lloyd ran over to the Presbyterian Church where all the freshman and sophomore classes were being held, and he told the exciting news to the first teacher he could find. And of course, it wasn't long before the news spread around town like wildfire. It turns out that he wrote his winning essay as part of an assignment in his American history and government class. What's interesting is that two students actually scored higher than him, so Lewis took it upon himself to submit his essay to the contest. The day after being awarded the scholarship, Lewis was interviewed by the Associated Press. He described how he had done all his own work except, quote, that my teacher and the school principal and superintendent helped me on some grammar. He planned to study engineering but was still undecided as to which college he would attend. But it turns out that Lloyd had won far more than a scholarship. Quote, Eddie Cantor has called me up three times, and gee, he is going to show me all around New York. Now, this would be an amazing adventure for a young man who had never ridden on a train, never been on an airplane, and had only traveled out of Missouri for 30 minutes, and that's when he went across the state line to Leavenworth, Kansas. As for the winning essay, here's what Lloyd wrote. Quote, Peace is an expensive luxury. It is so expensive that the countries have never yet been willing to pay its price. The world can have peace whenever it really wants it more than anything else, but up until now, men have never wanted peace as much as at the present. The price of peace is free movement of trade, free movement of populations, and adjustable distributions of territory. This is an expensive demand. It will not be until we see the superior value of peace that we shall be willing to meet it. At the present moment, we have national trade barriers that have set up artificial and expensive systems so as to cut off others from the normal markets in which they might dispose of their goods. Our own tariff is an example. It was adopted over the protests of 50 nations. 
It was one of the most difficult policies of the contemporary world, making a dislocation of normal markets, shutting off other nations from natural outlets for their surplus products, and so condemning millions of their people to live at starvation levels. We cannot escape responsibility for the resulting tendency to war. Would we rather fight than surrender the right to control our tariffs to suit our own welfare? Would Great Britain call out her army and navy before she would part with a square mile of her empire? These are questions whose answers reveal whether we are willing to pay the price of peace. My own guess is there are some things we value more highly than peace, and this leads me to the belief that it is not until we are willing to say we want peace more than economic or territorial or colonial advantages that we shall have peace. This has produced the most enthusiastic belief of our current world, namely, that we serve our own best interests of the nation above all other. The supreme good in the mind of the average man is not the building of peace among nations, but the securing of the advantages of his own nation before that of any or all other nations. As long as this is true, every man is the raw material of an army, and popular psychology supports our own economic nationalism in a tendency towards international strife. It will not be until we are ready to put international good above national advantage that we shall be prepared for peace. And here's the last paragraph. The first advance on the road to peace is to recognize its cost. Peace is an easy word to praise, but a costly one to live with. Nevertheless, it is only on the keeping the peace that we shall achieve those goals that set men free. There is no other way. There is no cheaper way. Wow, that's incredibly well written, and much of what Lloyd said could be applicable to the world today. And I can tell you from experience that there are few students of that age who can write at a similar level. Of course, Lloyd's wise words were reproduced in newspapers across the country. Uh, Radio announcers read his essay to their audiences, reporters and photographers, they lined up outside his home, and congratulatory telegrams just poured in from around the nation. Most importantly, however, was that the citizens of Plattsburgh, they could not have been prouder of Lloyd. But anyone who's about to go to the big city needs to go in style. So Lloyd was fitted in a brand new Oxford double-breasted suit, you know, complete with a red silk tie, new shoes, a pearl gray felt hat, a coat, and gloves. And of course, the provider of all these goods took out a large ad in the Kansas City Times. It read in part, quote, Lloyd Lewis, winner of Eddie Cantor's $5,000 Essay Scholarship Award, was completely outfitted by Peck's Young Men's Shop before leaving for New York. Peck's is proud of the achievement of Lloyd Lewis, proud, too, that he selected his outfit at our store. And of course, the ad goes on and on. But to the left of the text is a large photograph of Lloyd dressed in that new outfit. Finally, on April 9th, Lloyd boarded a TWA airliner in Kansas City, and he was off to New York City. Upon his arrival, he checked into the Roosevelt Hotel, and he was treated to a season's opener baseball game, a visit to the Empire State Building, and a front row seat at the Ziegfeld Follies. Then, after viewing the play Victor Regina, he met the star that was Helen Hayes, and the two of them exchanged autographs. His trip would culminate on Sunday, April 12th, when Lloyd spent the entire day at Eddie Cantor's home. Then, later that evening, Lloyd was introduced on air to the millions of listeners who were tuning in to Eddie's show. Lloyd spoke briefly and then thanked all those involved for his, quote, good fortune. 
and reporters continue to treat Lloyd like he was a celebrity. When asked if he was enjoying his trip, he answered, quote, it's very nice. And then another reporter inquired, have you a sweetheart? And his reply was, no, the girls never thought much of me, but now they are all crazy about me. Well, Lloyd went to bed that night feeling like he was floating on cloud nine. And that was until the phone rang early the next morning. So Lloyd drowsily answered. And on the other end of the line was Eddie Cantor's manager, a guy named Benny Holzman. And he asked, quote, can you drop over at the office right away? The life of Lloyd Lewis is about to drastically change. Now, I'm going to leave you in suspense for a brief moment while we take a quick break to hear from the sponsors of this podcast. But when we return, I'll let you know why Benny needed to talk to Lloyd. Plus, of course, you'll hear the remainder of the story. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. Clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Just prior to the break, Lloyd Lewis, the winner of the $5,000 scholarship, he was asked to stop over at the office of Benny Holzman, who was Eddie Cantor's manager. We pick up the story there. Upon his arrival, Lloyd sat down beside Benny's desk. Now, there were others present at this meeting, although they weren't identified in the press reports, so I really don't know who they were. But Benny then asked, quote, I understand that you copied this essay, Lloyd. Is that right? And while many students, of course, would deny that they had, Lloyd replied, quote, yes, of course. And it was clear that Lloyd did not understand that he had done something wrong. For example, he questioned, quote, what is plagiarism? I don't know what that means. Lloyd explained to those present at the meeting, quote, sure, I copied the article. I don't see anything wrong in that. It was much better than I could have done. And honestly, I don't see anything wrong in it. I wanted to win the contest and go to college. So I just looked up a lot of magazine articles on the same subject in the library and then picked out what I thought was the best. I didn't copy it all, though. I took just enough paragraphs to make it the right length. I counted the words. The discovery that Lloyd had copied his essay had begun two days earlier. That's when Mrs. William Thayer Brown was memorizing a speech that she was scheduled to deliver to a club that she belonged to. 
Now, she had read Lloyd's essay in the New York Times, and she wanted to include part of it in her own speech. But as she was reading the words aloud, she suddenly got this funny feeling that she had read those words before. She then grabbed a copy of Peace Digest and found the article that she had in mind. It had been written by Dr. Frank Kingdon, who was the president of Newark University. So Mrs. Brown immediately called Dr. Kingdon, and after that she tried to get in touch with Eddie Cantor, but she was unsuccessful. Come Monday morning, Dr. Kingdon contacted the Newark News, and he told them what Mrs. Brown had discovered. The paper then called CBS, who in turn contacted Cantor's manager, Holzman. What's interesting is that after the story broke, a reporter recalled that Lloyd had told him shortly before he flew to New York that he had taken his essay from Peace Digest. Now, Lloyd later explained that, quote, it was filled with a lot of words that was a bit too big, and I took some out and I put some in that I thought of. I didn't think I would get anywhere with it. But let's face it, this is a contest with no rules. All one had to do was submit the best essay that answered the question, how could America stay at a war? And that's exactly what Lloyd did. There was absolutely nothing stating that the essay needed to be one's own work. So I guess the big question is, was Lloyd disqualified? Let's let Eddie Cantor answer that question. Quote, I feel badly. It's a terrible thing. I don't think the boy thought he was doing anything that wasn't on the square. He was trying to get a college education. I'd hate to see him suffer from what seems on the surface an honest mistake, but of course he does not get the college scholarship. Shortly after Lloyd admitted plagiarizing the essay, Eddie Cantor's secretary made a call to the Plattsburgh High School to let them know that the peace essay had been disqualified. His history teacher, that's Mr. Gillian, he told a reporter that the secretary mentioned something about, quote, a lack of quotation marks. I guess he need quotation marks around the entire thing. Gillian added that all 53 of his students who entered the contest had been told that the material needed to be original, but clearly Lloyd didn't get that message. Lloyd stated, quote, I guess everybody will feel pretty badly about this, but I didn't know it was wrong. There was nothing in the rules about it. Honest, there wasn't. Upon hearing the news, his mother Elsie stated, quote, Of course I feel hurt, and I feel sorry for the boy, not ourselves. I am sure that if Lloyd copied another essay, he did so unconsciously. Dad Logan, on the other hand, appeared to be a man of few words. All he said was, quote, We'll just forget it, and that's it. That Monday evening, that's the same day after he was caught, Lloyd boarded an airplane to head home. But think about this, he's no longer the hometown hero, and he had to go back and face the people of Plattsburgh in shame. But the citizens of Plattsburgh were better than that. No one held a grudge, and none were willing to make Lloyd feel worse than he already felt. When he got off that plane in Kansas City, Lloyd was shocked to find a delegation had arrived to greet him. As he stood on the steps of that plane, his first remark was, quote, Gosh, I didn't think anybody would be here to meet me. Then school superintendent E.O. Hammond replied, Of course we're here to meet you, Lloyd. We're mighty proud of you. J.H. Baber, who operated a cleaning shop in Plattsburgh, asked, Have a good trip, Lloyd? Lloyd replied, I had a swell time, but I'm sure glad to be back. Baber later told a reporter, quote, he mustn't feel that he's committed a crime or disgraced himself. This could put the old damper on him if it gets under his skin. He didn't mean any harm. He's a fine boy. My boy was in the contest. 
How else could they get any dope on peace if they didn't read what someone else wrote? They never have been to Europe. A reporter then asked, Lloyd, did you copy that essay? Why, I guess so. Anyway, I had it with me when I wrote mine. But shucks, I didn't know it was the fellow's property. What did Cantor say? He told me not to worry. He said that everybody makes mistakes. He said he had made some mistakes when he was young. Do you intend to go to college when you get out of high school? Yes, if I can. Mr. Cantor said that we'll see that you get to college. Now, there had been a celebration planned for that Thursday night at the Baptist Church, but that was called off. Reverend Whaley explained, just because it would be embarrassing for Lloyd, not because we're not still for him. But there was still one big question that needed to be answered. Who should get the $5,000 scholarship? Now, it was reported that Eddie Cantor first thought to award it to Dr. Kingdon. After all, he was the true author of the winning, you know, the best essay that was submitted, and of course, anyone could have entered the contest. If it was awarded to Kingdon, he could just give the money to whoever he chose. But that's not what they decided to do. The decision was made to give it to the author of the essay chosen by the judges for second place. He was Owen Matthews III, although on Ancestry he's listed as Owen Matthews IV, and he was a high school graduate living in Portland, Oregon at the time. And Owen dreamed of going to college, but he was financially unable to do so. Instead, he was working as a messenger for the Swift Meat Company. He questioned, quote, And it's really true? $5,000, and I can go to any school that I want to? That's going to take some thought. He explained, quote, I just wrote what I knew. In the summer of 1933, I attended the World Boy Scout Jamboree at Godola, Hungary. There were boys my own age there from all countries. Even though we couldn't talk each other's languages, we made ourselves understood. We knew that no matter what the diplomat of our respective countries might say, we boys had no reason for fighting. That was the basis of my essay. I suggested the governments of all countries could well afford to sponsor such international youth conferences instead of leaving them to a private agency like the Boy Scouts. I believe and I suggested that such meetings of young people would do more for world peace than any meeting of diplomats. And here's what Owen wrote, and I think this is a little bit more appropriate, a little bit more what you'd expect from a high school graduate. Quote, My idea of how America can stay out of war is based on my personal experiences. I am an Eagle Scout and have been in scouting for seven years. Through scouting and other worthwhile youth movements is the way this can be accomplished. The spring of 1933, I heard of the coming 4th International Scout Jamboree to be held in Gadella, Hungary, and made my plans to attend. I went to the Jamboree and there found my solution for future world peace. While a member of this wonderful Jamboree, I learned what true brotherly love meant. In Europe, wherever we met a person in the scout uniform, we knew he was our loyal friend and brother. Although unable to converse with some foreign scouts, their actions always bespoke friendliness. All boys of the Jamboree wanted to be friends, and we made new ones every day. By actually living for two weeks with 30,000 foreign scouts, we learned that they thought and acted just as we did, even though their color and creed might be different. We loved these brother scouts as much as those in America. Throughout the Jamboree encampment covering many square miles was an attitude of friendliness and goodwill, no thought of enmity, everyone showing their paramount thought of creating world peace for the future.
the real benefits from this jamboree are being manifested as time goes on. I am corresponding with eight scouts I met at the jamboree who live in the following countries. Estonia, Luxembourg, England, Austria, Persia, Syria, South Africa, and Australia. We exchange stamps, songs, literature, and various articles pertaining to our respective countries and thereby continuing our worthwhile friendship. After these contacts, how could we ever want to go to war against each other? If the United States government sent pick groups of youth to these international gatherings, expenses paid, it would open the eyes of youth the world over as to the fertility of war. Upon their return to America, they should deliver lectures in schools and to older organizations telling the thoughts of youth in regard to war with other countries. If taught in youth the crime of war, as adults these boys will wholeheartedly disfavor war. Peace gatherings and encampments of youth from all countries will do more to further world peace than adult peace conferences held in some castle or other building. Stress the movement for intelligent voting at the polls to see that the only people sent to Congress are those who will do everything humanly possible to always vote to keep us out of war. If we teach our youth of today the crime of taking human life, as in war, they will vote in the future to never leave their own shores to fight against other nations. Thus, America can stay out of war. Again, very well written. I was unable to find out much about either of the contest winners once the story disappeared from the headlines. Now, there is an online scan of a 1939 MIT yearbook, and it lists an Owen William Matthews III as a junior there, which was exactly three years after he won the prize money, so it does appear that he made good use of the award. His World War II draft card indicates he was working for the Aluminum Company of America, you know, Alcoa, in Vancouver, Washington. Then, after the war, he married Carol Virginia Byram on October 21st in 1945, and Owen passed away on December 13, 1972, at a young 55 years of age. As for Lloyd, his obituary stated that he was a big-time loser, and his life just spiraled out of control after that. No, 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 I'm just making that up. That is totally not true. His obituary really stated that he served one term in the U.S. Army, and that he worked for General Dynamics Aerospace. He married Irene Wilmot on February 13th of 1944, and he passed away on April 15th of 2016. He lived a long life. He was 98 years old at the time. He was survived by two sons, six grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. I hope you enjoyed that story. You know, having been a teacher for three decades, I've had to deal with my share of cheating over the years, so this story kind of spoke to me. And if anyone has any further information on either Lloyd Lewis or Owen William Matthews III, or maybe it's the fourth, just let me know. I'd be curious to learn more about what happened to the two men after the story faded from the headlines. I really just couldn't find much online. Now, just a brief note that someone commented on Apple Podcasts, and it's just a fluke that I saw this because typically I don't see what's posted there. But someone wrote the following, Oh dear, been a fan for a while, but the big oil ad really turned me off. Glad you have advertising, but I really don't want to hear BS from a company that's done so much to make the world a worse place. See you down the road. Now, I have no idea what ad that was, and I know I'm never going to get that listener back but I just want to make sure that everyone knows that I have nothing to do with the ads that run on the podcast. They're all handled by the network I'm on, and basically I just upload the file, my recording, and they insert the ads. They decide what plays, 
and then the computer takes it from there. Now, occasionally they will ask for my approval on an ad, but honestly, I can't remember the last time that happened. It's been a long time. Now, when I first joined the network several years ago, they really did ask for my input, and I made it clear I wanted no ads for drugs, alcohol, smoking products, uh, anything of a sexual nature, and I can just go on. But staffing there has since changed, and I have no input at all. I am clueless as to what ads they're inserting. So if for some reason you're offended by an ad that's on the podcast, I do apologize for that, but I really have no control over what they're doing. Okay, so much for that public service announcement. Let's move on here. Uh, If you'd like to contact me about this particular story, the podcast as a whole, the website or whatever, please do so through my email. That's steve at uselessinformation.org. You can use Facebook Messenger, or you can use the contact form on my website, which is uselessinformation.org. Try not to use the comments section on Apple uh, Podcasts or Spotify. Those are really just a one-way street. You post something there, and there's no way for me to reply. In fact, they never even tell me there's a comment there, so I may not even see it. Just a reminder that my latest book, The Flipside History, is currently available, as are my previous two books. Those are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. All three books are collections of long-forgotten true stories, you know, just like the ones you always hear on this podcast. Also, be sure to subscribe to the Useless Information Podcast or your favorite podcast platform, and that'll allow you to have immediate access to new episodes when they're released. Uh, My Twitter feed, that's at Useless Infocast. It's at Useless Infocast. And be sure to like the show on Facebook. And I've said this before, but you can just do a quick search for the Useless Information Podcast, and it should pop up. Anyway, I'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next podcast. Thanks as always for listening and take care, everyone. Bye. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.